Hi, and welcome. You're listening to Sip, Sip, Hooray, the podcast where the wine is perfectly chilled and the conversation is also perfectly chilled. We are the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I am Mary Babbitt. And I'm the other Mary, Mary Orlin. And we are so excited that a good friend could join us today, Master Sommelier Evan Goldstein. Now, Evan was the eighth Master Sommelier in the United States when he was certified, and he was also the youngest person to become a Master Sommelier at the time. And we've gotten to know him, and he was a regular on our TV show in Wine Country, and Evan's knowledge of wine is deep, but it's also, he makes it very relatable, easy to understand, and fun. And that's why we love him. So Evan, it's just a joy to have you on and to work with you again. Thanks for being with us. Gosh, well, I, I, what, a, what, a, what a very sweet and uh, lovely intro. It's my pleasure uh, to be back with you. Um, it has been way way too long and i remember <laughs> fondly and with great memories all of our uh, our shoots together and doing all of our fun stuff and uh i'm just happy we can as what do they say put the band back together again yeah yay <laughs> so great to be with you again evan and yes you were one of our our very favorite experts on in wine country our television show and it was always a delight working with you so glad to have you back and you know I'm excited to have our listeners meet you, Evan, and get to know you. You have been big into wine since I, I you, you became the eighth American Master Sommelier in 1987. But I'm curious about when this whole thing started for you, because I know you've been busy since 87. So can you back us up and tell us how you got interested in wine and and how it grew? Yeah, absolutely. What is it? Sherman Peabody and the Wayback Machine, huh? Let's, let's go back there. <laughs> Um, I, there you go. Well, I actually was was fortunate enough to to grow up as a as a young lad in a household where wine was part of the uh, part of the table. Uh, my mother, uh, Joyce Goldstein, is a very well known and celebrated legacy chef here in the San Francisco Bay Area where I reside. And um, due to her love of food, love of wine, love of all of that, we were um, you know frankly just exposed earlier on. So while you know, most of my friends were drinking Coca-Cola and hanging out and doing all that, uh, whatever, at table. We actually were, you know, in a very European tradition, allowed to color our water uh, with wine when we were little. And then as we became sort of uh, older adolescents, um, if your grades were good, you could have a glass of wine with dinner with the family. So it was done in a very responsible way. And, you know, I sort of caught the bug uh, by accident. I mean, I always loved food and have been a, a food aficionado since I can remember. But the wine thing came in very, very early. And wine, as we know, is an acquired taste. So I was, I guess I acquired it earlier. And then um, when I had the uh, privilege of uh, fast forwarding a couple of years and moving to Europe when I was uh, a late teen, um, I was living in Paris, uh, cooking in Paris at the time. And uh, obviously you are, you know, in the uh, epicenter of, of wine world. And it uh, dawned on me that I could be in Champagne in an hour, Burgundy in three, Bordeaux in five. Uh, this is all pre-TGV. But um, nevertheless, you know, because I was an unpaid stagiaire, if you will, you know, I was not um, uh, always, you know, stuck on the weekends. If I was uh, with enough notice able to get a weekend off, I would just sort of grab my uh, Michelin guide and my Waverly route book and pick a destination and and head off uh, serendipitously there and um, sort of had wine reinforced at that point in time. And, you know, the rest I don't want to say is history, but that was definitely my catalyst. Wow. I wish I had had that motivation to get good grades. You know, at the table, but my parents didn't think that way. No, most parents didn't. You know, it was it was interesting because we actually had a wine cellar when you know when I was literally able to just sort of reach the door and go in, and it was sort of mesmerizing at times, even as you know, probably a ten year old or an eleven year old, just to walk into that cellar and you know, very much like um, people who learn about wine today, you know, pull a bottle out, look at the label, try and decipher it, all that that other stuff. And then, you know, to be able to net, take it to the next step and um, have, you know, a glass from one of those bottles and, you know, live the history of it and get the story behind it um, was an amazing um, opportunity. Absolutely. But then how did you take it from learning and appreciating wine to 
wanting to become a master sommelier. Well, that, that's that that's an interesting story as well too. So it, you know, subsequently after my my time in France, um, I was offered a job uh, as a sous chef at the soon to be opened Auberge du Soleil in Napa Valley mm. back in God nineteen seventy nine, I want to say, or 80, something like that. And, um, you know, I, I moved home to take that job, lived in wine country, if you will. So when I wasn't um, working uh, behind the stove, I was out tripsing about and trying to learn about wine. And there was the first of ultimately a couple of situations where I felt um, at the time, based on what I had learned um, over then, you know, the years that, you know, the food was terrific, uh, but the wine list was, it was okay. It wasn't spectacular. And I offered up um, there and then subsequently um, at Chez Panisse in Berkeley, where I worked uh, after that, to you know to assist on the wine program, to support, to learn, to do whatever, and was rebuffed both what? times. Really? So, really? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, you know, you're a cook, stay in the kitchen, do what you do. We've got the wine list covered, all that sort of stuff. So I sort of got frustrated, but nevertheless, you know, I don't know. That's the way it was. And then um, I remember uh, going on a trip of all places, sort of serendipitously, because Brazil will come back into the fold a little bit later. Um, but I was down in Brazil on holiday and uh, visiting with some friends and had a very long lunch in Sao Paulo at a restaurant um, called CT, owned by uh, Claude Troigreau, who was the um, nephew of Jean Troigreau, of Troigreau fame in France. Right. And um, we um, you know, chatted after lunch finished. He came over to the table, and we started yakking in French together. My Brazilian friends thought it was boring, stayed for one drink, left after that. But he and I just sort of chatted a ways. And you know, what you find out is that the, the food industry, or, or food, if you will, gastronomy was so small back then that we definitely had various points of, uh, of, of connection from, you know, our mutual time living in France. Mm. And then, you know, we just chatted and the next thing where we're having a beer and then we're having a cachaça and then we're doing this and all that. And then he looks at his watch and pulls his glasses down over his, the bridge of his nose and says, oh, mon dieu, I've got to go back to work. And I said, well, wait, 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 before you leave, one final question. And he looked at me and he goes, what would that be? And I said, well, I don't understand why you're here. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, you're, you're, you're a Troigro for God's sakes. Your family is royalty in France. And one would just think that you would have opened up or continued on in the, you know, the lineage of your family. And he looked at me and said, Evan, it's really simple. He goes, it's a no win. If I stay in France and I work at the restaurant or even open up my own restaurant, well, you know, you're a trois gros. You're look at your father, look at your uncle. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're going to be a chef, but you're always going to be the kid. Of the chef. And if I, if I opened up a bad restaurant, I'd be a black sheep. So I decided to go as far away as I possibly could. And Brazil seemed like a good place. And I started myself there. Well, at the time I didn't realize it, but my mouth might, might have hit the table from about four feet because I, I realized that, you know, I could, I could continue on cooking away and all that. But because my mother being who my mother is, mm -hmm. I would always be known as Joyce's kid. And of course he can <laughs> yeah. cook, you know, he's a Goldstein for God's sake. And at that point in time, I decided that I needed to go into something that was, that was different or at least a, a footpath off the main path. And that's when I decided that I wanted to do wine. And um, when we came, when I came home, we um, we found that there was a whole crew, you know, you know how restaurants are. Right. One day, the, the, one of the chefs comes in and says, I'm leaving to open up my own restaurant and takes half the half the people there with him. Right. And that gentleman left to go open up what was then going to be Madrona Manor. I'm sure that is familiar sure. to both of you. And um, oh, half the crew left. So rather than working opposite shifts um, to my mom to sort of prevent the people yelling nepotism, nepotism, mm -hmm. nepotism. We found ourselves working together literally side by side. And within a couple of months, um, decided we wanted to open up our own restaurant, gave Alice two years of notice mm. uh, and ultimately opened up square one. And I said, I don't care what I do at square one, but I'll be darned if I'm not doing the wine list. And my mother said, that's perfect. Cause I don't want to do it. You talk more than I do. One of us should be on the floor <laughs> and that will be you. And that was 1984. Wow. That's yeah. so great. And so your wish came true. You got to have a voice about wine and also in the kitchen, I'm sure as well. And, and, and it just blossomed from there. I mean, you've gone on, you've continued this gusto for wine. You know, I wonder how you keep it, how you keep it interesting. I mean, you started a long time ago, not that you're, you're, you're very young. You started as a, an infant. So how do you keep the magic of wine alive? 
No, that's an, that's an excellent question. You know, and back in the early 80s, you know, when we started doing our, our, you know, recon and looking for a space in San Francisco and starting to look at, you know, who are the purveyors? How do you buy wine? How does that all work in literally the mid 80s? So, you know, if we opened up on May 14th, 1984, which is the exact date, you know, you can work your way backwards a year and a half to, to start that process. And it was a very nascent industry back then. It was yeah. still very much driven by spirits and cocktails right. and to a lesser degree, wine was, you know, the holy trinity of classified Bordeaux, Bob Red and Bob White, Mondavi and Magnums, yeah. and Chateauneuf du Pop, you know, and so anything outside of that was sort of running against the grain and, and pushing boulders up the hills. But I was determined based on, you know, what I had learned and experienced and all that to um, cast a different direction. And our food was different and everything else there. So um, we, you know, we did the work, you know, we opened up with with sort of a sense that if it was going to be a Mediterranean restaurant, which is what it was going to be and Mediterranean in our mind uh, was defined by being literal TT. O-R-A-L, not literal, E-R-A-L, which covered literally everything from North Africa to Greece to Turkey to, you know, France to Spain to Portugal to whatever, that the wines needed to reflect uh, not only um, uh, sort of a profile of, uh, of Europe, but also, you know, flavors that worked with our food. And I understood that to be the fact, but I also understood the fact that we needed to catch the wave. And the wave in the water was this sort of emerging sort of swell of what was going to be boutique artisanal California wine. Mm -hmm. And back then, um, it was very small. I mean, there were just a handful of producers, as you know, who were getting their, their, their selves going in the 70s and early 80s and all of that on top of the classic names, but we were hell bent on having all of them when we opened up in 1984. So I literally made pilgrimages, pilgrimages to go see, you know, the late great Joe Swan mm -hmm. to sit down and break bread with Dave Raffinelli to go and mm -hmm. drive up and drink a lot, way too much tequila with Mike Collini at Stony Hill and <laughs> stuff like that. And, you know, talk, uh, you know, Charlie Wagner into putting Camus on a restaurant wine mm -hmm. list back in the time when nobody did that. Wow. So we okay. opened up the doors of square one in 1984 with this sort of wonderful composite of, you know, classic and more obscure European wines and this emerging pastiche of what was going to be California fine wine and became literally, you know, from day one, a wine destination restaurant that we indeed paired incredible wines to match with my mother's great food. And, you know, um, for a long period of time from, you know, 1984 until the earthquake, you know, Square One along with probably, you know, Jeremiah Tower Stars were uh, the two it restaurants in San Francisco. That is so cool. And, you know, what you, you were visionaries in, when it came to wine and food. That, that, I, I like to, I like to think we were, we were helping shape the curve, you know, um, in terms of things that we took for granted that today are really hip, you know, whether it was wine from Jura that we were actually pouring in the and late 80s. you were 80s pouring Jura in the 80s? Yeah, Apremont and Savoie and all these other crazy things. We, you know, you had to track them down. But, you know, there were a couple of, you know, wonderful little importers that were out there or importers that would become importers, having been the progeny of some of the initial great importers. And it just, you know, the neat thing is, is that when you're doing something really cool, Mary, um, they come to you, mm -hmm. they come find you. So if you're doing something that is shining a light, the people will find their way to the light and they'll come, Evan, this is like right up your alley. You know, there's this wine that's never been sold in, in California before from Spain called Tinto Pesquera from this place called Ribera del Duero. And we know that you should be the first restaurant carrying. Wow. And that's how it okay. happened. That is exciting. But still, I'm still curious, uh, all these years later, how do you stay inspired? Well, you know, the beauty of wine, Mary, is that wine keeps you incredibly humble. Because if you think about it, there's a couple of harvests a year mm -hmm. uh, in the northern and southern hemisphere. You get one shot. The wines are made. The, Mother Nature gives you what Mother Nature gives you. And then the wines that are in the bottle change and evolve. So you never own it. You never... Uh, you never can say, well, I've had that wine before, because maybe if you did, yeah, last week, you know it, but three years ago, what's going on with that wine there? So exactly. I sort of view wine very much like um, an iceberg, you know, as large as it may be on the surface of the water, it's three times as large underneath. And it's the humility that wine um, gives you that keeps you um, passionately terrified, honest, <laughs> and um, wanting to and wanting to keep keep on your I game. 
because if it, it will own you if you don't want to if you don't try and stay caught up I, with that it. is so true i always feel like there's so much more to learn as much as i read and study and taste there's every day is like oh my god i something new and how do i keep up with all of it it's just exploded that's interesting good for you i love that answer thank you thank you i i find it i find it quite apropos and um you know the other thing is we know is that you know back in to reference that point of 1987 when i passed the ms if you looked at the what the world of wine was back then you know half the places we take for granted these days were either under political disarray and ergo unavailable in the united states or simply you know not on anybody's radar mm -hmm. yet so uh you know the world has expanded um greatly over time yeah, it's gotten smaller it's gotten bigger and smaller in different ways right we all have Very access so. to so much more now you know and one of the things i've always loved about you is that wine education is important to you and helping people learn about wine and not be intimidated by wine, but know how to pair wine with food and stuff. Can you tell us about that education piece? It's led to some um, some books and it's led to a couple of career projects for you as well. But tell us why the interest in helping others share your passion? Yeah, no, thank you. It's, I, I appreciate your asking that question. When we um, had Square One back in the 80s, one of the things that we, we, we had in addition to the restaurant was we had a space next door that, that was initially a, a more casual restaurant that morphed into um, a private room for Square One. Well, when you didn't have an event going on in the private room, it's like, what are you doing in this space? To generate revenue and all that so we decided to essentially create wine classes and we held them on tuesday nights probably about you know 40 out of 52 weeks of the year and pick different subjects um and um essentially had people come in they would pay um, a flat fee to take the class have some small nibbles of food that would uh, you know tailored for and would accompany the uh, 10 wines in the wine class, I would study and learn about these areas. And it was primarily for our customers. Initially, it became for the trade over time. But there wasn't, you know, honestly, back then, a lot of wine education that was out there and certainly very little that was formalized and for um, for the consumer. You know, there were trade events, as we used to know them, but very little that people could access. And so what we found is that people would come to these classes. We did them at essentially slightly over break even, but most of them would then come and have dinner afterwards. So it was a really wonderful way for us to do it. And what I learned over time was that, that I enjoyed learning. And as much as enjoying the learning myself, I enjoyed sharing the learning with other people. So between that avenue and the avenue of teaching fellow trade people who wanted to pursue their master sommelier courses and diplomas and stuff like that, that became sort of a passion of mine. Um, and so I kept doing that over the years. Um, the food and wine thing, obviously being a trained chef first who became a sommelier, uh, became a uh, an avenue and point of difference. So we did, you know, wine dinners and wine and food classes and all that. And those ultimately um, led first to my first two books, uh, Perfect Pairings and Daring Pairings, both with University of California Press that have done um, extraordinarily well over the years. Um, and are um, as people, people who appreciate um, book world would, would, I would tell you they're backlisted, which means they'll never go out of print. You know, they'll always right. reprint cool. them, uh, which is great. And then, um, you know, my, my wine interest kept just going and growing from there. Then in 1990, um, after, you know, doing uh, restaurant work for forever, um, a couple of things happened. One, as uh, you noted, I, you know, I passed my, my MS in, in 1987 and all of a sudden, you know, the speaking invitations and the trips and all that stuff start coming out of the blue. And what I realized as I traveled more is that what we were doing in a little microcosm of our dining room was not necessarily translating at a national, much less international level in terms of, you know, quality wine programs and savvy trained sommeliers and waiters and all that. And I went sort of on this mission if you will, to figure out what can I do to help people in the business do a better job so that when somebody asks them, what's the difference between this Chardonnay and that Chardonnay, they wouldn't simply shrug their head and reply $8. You know, they needed to have something more substantial than that. So um, I was approached by um, Sam Bronfman, who then at the time had a company called uh, Seagram Classics Wine Company, and who was a regular uh, diner at Square One Restaurant. And I had sort of made the um, decision 
after uh, the new year crossed in from 89 to 90 that I wanted to do something that was bigger than what we were doing at Square One that would impact more people. And I started just letting everybody know because I didn't want people, you know, thinking, oh, Evan and Joyce had this big fight. Evan's walking from Square One and da, 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 da. When, you know, you're never, you never leave the family business. You're always <laughs> doing consulting. Um, and But I wanted to do something there. And Sam looked at me and he said, you know, before you do anything else, come talk to me. And he basically, you know, um, identified that Seagram had decided at the time that on-premise was uh, the wave of the future, that establishing wine brands would be done in this way. And he could think of nobody better to help them figure out that path than me. And he was happy to fund it to, you know, whatever seven figures needed to make it happen and give me, um, you know, the resources I needed. And that was what um, essentially birthed the uh, Sterling Vineyard School of Service mm. and Hospitality, uh, which which went on for roughly, God, seven years, educated north of 15,000 people in 14 wow. different countries. Um, and, um, you know, and, and that was sort of my professional platform and really reinforced my uh, desire for educating. You know, the book sort of came um, during and after that time. And, um, you know, when Seagram eventually got sold to Diageo and Diageo got sold to Allied de Mac and where, where, you know, they sold the wine division. I mean, it was all this sort of constant stuff. I would always be, you know, the education guy everywhere I went and helped, you know, develop education programs across the trade for, you know, well north of uh, a well, decade. That's so and a cool. But then you also do amazing consumer education. And I will tell you that the way I learned about you was through Mary Babbitt. <laughs> because she well, was, I thank you so much for that. She was a big Ron Owen fan listener, and she would come to me when, like, the first year or two of our um, fledgling wine show in wine country, and say, hey, you know, there's this guy Evan Goldstein. He's on Ron Owen's show, and Ron Owen was a radio host on um, San Francisco station KGO. And um, Evan, you were a regular guest. And she was like, he, you know, he just explains it so, it, it's so easy to understand. We need to get him on the show. We need to get him on the show. And tons of people would call in with your questions. And you could answer their questions so well. I, I just loved it. I appreciate that. Well, you, you want to hear the ultimate in in um, coincidence. I'm actually having dinner tonight oh, with Ron on, Owens really? and his wife, Jan, literally, who are, and you'll be the first to get the scoop on this day, are moving to Arizona oh. this oh. weekend. Um, and, uh, and we're celebrating their sort of going away dinner, uh, tonight. So how serendipitous that you bring it up. I'll have to let them know when they uh, come over in, in a couple of hours, but, uh, no, and, and that was, you know, Ron was a regular diner at square one and that, that 10 year, 12 year, uh, gig that we did together, um, was literally birthed out of the fact that one day his wine person, uh, bailed on him and he called me up and he said, can you come over here right now? <laughs> And that 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 started what was uh, yeah I mean literally well over uh, you know a decade I was gonna say more, well north of a decade because we started doing that in God 1991 and he stopped doing um, his show regularly just a few years ago so um, yeah amazing know. wow but yeah so thank Ron for making the connection for us right and wish him well too I I, I will I will but but Ron to your point and. You uh, too, subsequently, you know, really provided an opportunity to speak to people beyond the trade, which is, you know, which is was and, and still is in large part a good chunk of my audience. But there's nothing more pleasurable uh, that gives you more gratification than than answering a question and having somebody say, "Oh, I always wanted to know. Now I understand." Or watching somebody sit at a winemaker dinner and you explain something and they start shaking their head up and down vigorously in in uh, in agreement or whatever. So so well, thank you for not that. Everyone too, has the it, gift of being able to relate it to folks who don't know a lot about wine. You know, um, certainly there's fantastic educators who can talk to professionals in the trade, but being able to relate it to consumers takes a certain talent. And some patience. You know, I think one of the things I, I, I bemoan about many of my colleagues, many of whom know way more and have tasted far more than I ever will, is that they 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 um they can't get out of yeah. the geek mode all the time. And they, you know, and they don't understand that that, you know, it's a rather than sighing under your breath and 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 staring at them and burning lasers through your head, <laughs> here's an opportunity when you know that wine industry needs as many fans as it possibly can have to, to, to make that connection to get somebody excited about wine who prior to that was drinking, you know, beer or a cocktail or whatever. And then God, in these days, they're all drinking, you know, right. white claw and truly. Yeah. So we need to 
all work hard to ensure that people continue to be excited um, and not intimidated by wine. So that's in large part what you guys are doing as well, too. So it's And that brings up a question about how the sommelier profession has changed, especially since you started in, in the late 80s um, in terms of educating and the types of what your audience is now. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's interesting, you know, back back in the day, you know, the number of, of sort of bona fide sommeliers or wine directors, if you will, that were, you know, working full time in restaurant and hospitality establishments could literally be counted on, you know, two hands. Um, and that's nationally, not just uh, domestic, you know, in, in the local Bay Area. But, you know, we have people to thank that came before us. You know, my mentor in life mm-hmm. is Kevin Israeli, um, who was at Windows on the World for years and was America's first true sommelier, working with the late, great Joe Baum uh, in New York. But, but you know, so we, a handful of us, you know, just sort of started to do that. And we didn't consider ourselves per se sommeliers, but simply, you know, the wine experts in the restaurants and, and doing all of that. And we, we grew over time, our population expanded, but I think nobody um, was prepared for one, you know, what would be the master sommelier qualification diploma examination, which gave gravitas to the profession itself. But then secondarily, you know, things that sort of then happened like, um, you know, the whole element of sommeliers as rock stars, sommeliers as celebrities by, you know, Som the movie and Sideways and all these other things that came out there that people um, sort of did that. And that's been, that's been great. You know, you don't have to explain what a sommelier is to anybody uh, anymore, but, but nevertheless, you know, with celebrity causes um, issues and, you know, that's a whole other can of fish that, you know, the industry has, has, has been grappling and grappled with and is still grappling with. But I think for me, um, one of the things I feel very strongly about is in these times that we're living in, you know, from essentially February of last year through now, the restaurant trade in general and sommeliers certainly in specific have been rocked yeah. by the pandemic. And, you know, they're they're pivoting as hard as they can to try and find other pieces of work or things like this or, you know, this and that. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do is is just try and help and support and grow. And, you know, through my Master of the World program, we actually hire sommeliers to not only actually physically work for us, but also, you know, provide um, opportunities for them to teach classes using our kits and things like that, too. So I, I, I sort of feel like, you know, right now, sommeliers um, are, you know, are going the way of the polar bear really quick. And we need to do everything we possibly can to support them. You know, I fear that when um, we do start to come more out of this uh, this surreal time that we're living in, that you know, there's the great joke on, you know, the internet right now is there's you know there are no more sommeliers. There are a lot of some managers mm-hmm. out there who are half sommeliers, half managers with reduced um, lists that all have wines that sell for you know forty to eighty dollars, um, and that you know the the halcyon days of the profession. Are behind this. Well, I wouldn't be that cynical, but nevertheless, I think there's going to be a huge period of time while the you know the economy and the industry and all that get rebuilt. So all of us need to be doing everything we can to help support everybody so out there. So who your needs message it. to uh, sommeliers and future sommeliers is to stay the course, and it's you believe it's going to get better, and uh, that we will get back to uh, restaurants where you have a, a knowledgeable sommelier to guide you through the wine list. I believe in the, the long term, Mary, the answer to that is yes. I think in the short and near term, it's going to be a rocky road getting there. I think that um, it's going to be hard to get restaurants to um, visualize having full time beverage people back on the floor uh, whose sole job is to sell wine. Um, and I think that sommeliers, you know, much as like when I started, you know, when I, I was the sommelier at my restaurant, but I also did payroll. I also helped with insurance. I also did all these other things. And I think that that we will go back through that and it'll almost be sort of like a deja vu all over again as we have to rebuild from from scratch many things um, that are there. But I, I, I believe that people should stay the course. I believe they should be creative. I believe that they should look at being a sommelier or working as, uh, as, as a sommelier as being part of what they're doing, but that they're going to need to be um, augment that with other things, whether it's working for a supplier, whether it's working part-time in a tasting room or helping a winery out that has a, that needs education done there or anything they can possibly be doing, um, to do that because the number of absolute bona fide sommeliers out there is, is probably as, as, as opportune a moment as there are for absolute bona fide wine writers, which, you know, if your name's not 
Eric Asimov or Eskimobly, yeah, you don't relate. have a job right now. So uh, I can I totally relate to, to that. It's, it's tough. It's, it's yeah. really tough um, on the industry. And, you know, I might, and I don't know if you share this concern, but I worry that the um, importance or the um, value that sommeliers and wine writers can bring is being diminished. Undervalued, yes, and diminished, yes. And I think that it's really sad that even the ones who are doing full-time jobs, you can ask them after you've had three or four glasses of wine, and they'll tell you that, you know, is this exactly what I signed up for? Now I'm doing my column, I'm doing a wine of the week, I'm blogging, I'm podcasting, I'm doing this, by the way, for no more pay than I was doing before. And that's just for the stability of having that, you know, if not, you know, everything's just, uh, you know, it's, it's syndicated, it's, it's, it's wired. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that, 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 that has be, that has become the way. And, you know, I think what, what we've done, um, without getting way too cynical about all this is that, you know, uh, social, social and the internet in specific has really dumbed things down for everybody. They don't feel like they quote unquote need to know anymore because all you have to do is Google it. So people have become educationally mm-hmm. lazy and figure that even if they don't know one, they can look at it. Well, do I need to call over someone? I'll just look online and see what Vivino has to say, or see what Google has to say, or see what you know whatever has to say, and decide from there. So you know, I it, we're we're going through some you know we're living in a tipping point of, of so many um, of so many uh, eras and means and all of that, and understanding the value of, of of knowledgeable, educated people leading the charge is, to your point, Mary, underappreciated and undervalued right now. And it will come back. The pendulum will swing the other way. Let's just hope there's not too much collateral damage in between. Well, that actually leads us to a a, a really good pivot here that you've actually, through this pandemic, have been very busy with something you started well before the pandemic, but it is an effort to uh, help people along the journey to becoming a sommelier and to just educate people in general. Would you give us the lowdown on your Master the World Wine Club, the concept if I understand it correctly, is you do you get to do blind tastings that are sent to you in the mail and you give feedback on them and you get graded or help me out. Tell me more about it. Yeah. So, so Master the World um, is a now, um, a now one year live, but another three and a half years prior to that in creation program that is essentially that it's a subscription, a monthly subscription based blind tasting kit. Now, what we do is we essentially go out there and not unlike my old sommelier days, I would put out, you know, the word to the streets that I'm looking for this, I'm looking for that, I'm looking for this. And all the suppliers, you know, submit their samples and myself and a panel of my fellow master sommelier colleagues will sit down and taste flights, identify wines that we believe are archetypal examples of what they are. And then they go into the hopper, if you will, for consideration in these curated kits that, that I develop on a, on a monthly basis. Um, and we started out with that idea. And the goal was, in fact, that initially was sort of a two-pronged approach. One was to, um, you know, Jedi Knight, the uh, Jedi Knights in training. So provide them an at-home 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week opportunity for them to test themselves and then go online and quote unquote, see how they did. But the other one was to simply provide, um, you know, the passionate amateurs, the consumers that are out there who truly love wine, the opportunity to either a blind taste them if they want, but simply expand their palates by going into regions and grapes and areas that that uh, people who are professionals perhaps take for granted, but the average consumer who's used to Cabernet Chardonnay and Merlot may not may not go that way. So we opened up the doors. Um, uh, a year ago, it took three and a half years to figure out legalities, compliance, um, you know, getting wineries to understand that you are taking their finished wine and rebottling it, repackaging it and selling it while still giving them credit. I mean, so it was a really long process to get there. Um, but we, we opened the doors in January uh, and we started to, you know, we were, we were expecting sort of a modest, soft opening, not unlike you would do with a restaurant. And then COVID hit and all of a sudden, you know, we, people were trying to figure, well, what do I do? I, I can't get together with my tasting group. I need to, I need to do this at home or people were sort of saying, well, uh, how do I do this and all that? And we literally overnight, you know, started um, getting a lot of B2B inquiry. We are now not only doing our own monthly kits, which, which go out and is, which Mary, uh, which you both pointed out, you know, you can, um, you know, get by the kit and then there's an accompanying free webinar and you can taste the wines and hear them spoken about with three by three master sommeliers. And then we talk to you about the wines. You can ask questions and all that. Um, but also 
you know, a number of, con- you know, as we all know, the wine conference itself has had to pivot as well, too, mm-hmm. or the winemaker lunch has had to pivot. So all of these people are trying to figure out, well, what can I do to get my wines in a socially distanced way in front of somebody so I can taste the wine at the same time they're doing it without shipping out cases and cases and cases? Well, you know, 187 milliliters, which is the way we do business, has been a great way. And whether it's at a larger level, such as, you know, the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, WSET classes, which we supply levels one, two, and three for Napa Valley Wine Academy, the largest provider of that um, qualification or, or service, if you will, in the United States, or my own beloved Court of Master Sommeliers will be launching their online course in March of this year. You know, we provide the wines for those, as well as individual wineries that want to do that. But most importantly, you know, again, heart of my heart, and the reason why I started this was to provide these sort of monthly opportunities for people to feel um, that they were, they could be comforted in the fact that the person picking the wines that they were tasting in these sleeved blind uh, bottles were people who knew what they were doing and that they could either come in and do a, you know, full workout, you know, what's it look like? What's it smell like? What's it taste like? What's the acid? What's the acidity? They could do, you know, more of an options game and just pick the grape type in the country and the region or they could just say, you know, screw it, just hit the reveal thing, tell me what the wine is. But we provide opportunities for people to to, to try the wines and learn about them. And then either depending on, you know, I, I say tell people these days, we're yeah. Peloton for the palate. <laughs> you know, you want a heavy workout, I we can it. do that. You want a light workout for the day. Yeah, I was saying to Mario, um, something like that, like there's a leader kind of the equivalent of a leaderboard. And I have I have sat in on several of the exactly. Zooms. Um, I didn't get the kits, but what was fun for me is um, listening to you and the other three master psalms describe the wines. Like each 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 um, psalm, you know, we'll talk about one wine. Like you'll talk about one. Tim Geyser will talk about one. Madeline will talk about one. And um, with the t- mm-hmm. the clues, I try to figure out what the wine is. And I don't get all of them, but mm-hmm. I, I do pretty good, surprisingly. And it helps keep my, you know, skills going, I, I feel. And um, so, you know, people do have the opportunity to participate with the wines or without the wines. Um, and and also, you all, like you were saying, you, you work with um, on the more professional levels of wine societies or whatever. And last week I joined in on the um, Oregon wine board tasting that you all curated a, a kit for. And so I did get to experience the kit and what impressed me, because I've done a bunch of um, virtual tastings where wineries send out their little samples, but you know, those bottles, they come there, they have caps of course, but the seal is not as strong as it is on the bottles master the world sends out and um, your wines will keep a little bit longer if i don't want to open every one right away whereas the other ones like you gotta you know open it the day or so that it arrives or else it's not gonna be good anymore yeah absolutely that goes back to those whole three years prior to launching and coming up with the uh you know the technology that that allows us to you know under in an inner environment be able to um actually uh, rebottle a 750 that we check for cork, you know, because obviously we have to, you know, there's wines that are screw capped, there are wines that are technical uh, sealed like DMs and things like that. And then there, there are those that are actually punch cork. And every punch cork bottle that we open has to be signed off on by two people who both thumbs up and say this wine is sound before we go into the bottling process, which is done completely under, you know, in, in an inert environment with gases and stuff like that. And we rebottle each 750 in 40 seconds into 3.8, you know, 187s and then, and then top them off with the next bottle in, in the pipeline. And then we seal them with an industrial capper. So we actually spent the uh, jaw dropping amount of money to have, you know, the same type of a capper that, you know, a big company uses. And because of that, you know, we can guarantee the shelf life of those wines for months and months and months. In fact, I tasted the very first kit we made in January of last year, just two weeks ago to check in. And the wines were still holding up quite well. Um, and some of them were actually, one really? of the reds were actually better, I thought, a year later than they were, you know, right after we bottled them. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the challenges for a lot of the people who are doing small samplings is that they're literally just sort of pouring the wines from a funnel out there and, you know, topping it off with private preserve or something. But the shelf life of those wines is very short. The seals are not always perfect. I've 
talked to friends of mine who bemoan the fact yeah. that they get a box and the right. boxes are leaking um, or whatever. But so we spent a lot of time getting to where we are today and, um, you know, are quite comfortable and confident that, you know, if you bought a kit, um, you know, you could hold on to that kit for seven or eight months and you wouldn't have a problem with it. So you don't have to be a, an aspiring sommelier to, to get into this. It could just be any wine enthusiast who, who signs up for Master the World. Absolutely. Yeah. No, Mary, one of the things that I actually take great pleasure in is the number of emails that I get from people who are, you know, uh, just regular everyday wine enthusiasts. And what they'll do is they'll say, you know, Evan, we buy the kits. We don't even use the blind tasting. What we do is we simply, you know, pick a wine, you know, pull the label off, pull the sleeve off. So we see what it is. And then my, my wife and myself, my partner and myself simply each have a glass of that wine. And that means that over the course of a week, we get to go around the world, you know, uh, one time. So, you know, people will do it that way or people will say, you know, I like the blind tasting, but geez, I don't want to do it in 25 minutes with a clock. I'll just mm -hmm. pick a wine and I'll do one here and one there or whatever. Or, you know, people would just say, you know, I love the way that you've expanded oh, so my cool. palate. You know, the fact that I, yeah, that I, you know, I was only drinking this before and I've never thought about having a wine from, you know, from Spain, or I'd never had a, thought about having a wine from uh, New Zealand that wasn't Sauvignon Blanc. So um, we, we get that is so that. cool because yes, the expansion of the palate and then the trust knowing that these are curated by experts, by master sommeliers, you're not going to get a bum bottle. So you're getting really great wine from all over the world. I love that concept because, you know, I, I'm one of those people who feels that buying the average bottle of wine is kind of a crapshoot. You really, uh, I mean, there are certain labels that I, you can trust and stuff, but I can't tell you how many times I buy something thinking it's going to be better than it actually ends up being. Uh, no, I, and we, and, and that is a point of, uh, of absolute pride for us is the fact that we do. And it is to your point, it's curation. You know, there is a reason why we go through this process. And it's kind of like when, you know, people are saying, you know, uh, how, how, you know, I know my California wine or whatever, but geez, I walk into a store and how do I know where to begin with all of these French wines or Spanish wines and all that? And one of the tricks that I've told people over the years is, you know, here's a list of really good importers. And while it's not a guarantee, they've got an awfully good track record. And if they're bringing this wine in, chances are you're getting a pretty dynamite um, example of what it is. And in my Daring Pairings book, I actually put an entire list of importers that basically said, if you go in there, you don't know anything, just turn the back labels around and see who imports it. And if it's on this list, you've got a better than 50% shot, you're going to really like the wine. Any other good tips for us, Evan, while we got you? Uh, <laughs> well, um, I, I would tell people that, 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 you know, when you are trying a wine and when you're experimenting in a new wine, never judge it by the first sip. Because the first sip that comes out of a bottle, no matter what the closure is, no matter what the size of the bottle is, is going to be the worst one. Um, because the wine, you know, if you if you imagine that you were shaken up and squeezed into a bottle and all that, and somebody finally opened it up and let you come out, it's going to take you a while to acclimate to the room, to the people, to all those folks. And wines are very much the same way. They need the exposure to the ambient oxygen and all that to unravel and to allow the flavors to emerge. So I always say, you know, if you taste a wine, check it out, but go back 30 minutes later, go back an hour later. Um, give it, make sure you spread the wine enough out because especially if it's something you're thinking of investing and in buying more of it or buying a case to put down in your wine cellar or in the back of your closet or whatever, you want to know that the wine's got a future and it's a delicious wine. And I tell people that don't hold me to this, but that, you know, 20 minutes in a glass is basically worth about six months of bottle age. If you want to know if a wine's worth buying more than one or two bottles of, keep checking it every you know 20 minutes or every couple of hours and see if it keeps improving you know it's a wine that's going to be really good if you leave the glass on the table and come back and try it late the next morning and it's even better than it was then that's the wine you want to buy a couple of cases of and forget about it <laughs> that's awesome. it i love that tip so um evan um you know people still are so interested in making wine a career and um, you were a very great mentor to me when um, I was trying to figure out what my next step in wine was. And I'm wondering what your advice today would be to folks who want to become sommeliers or want to do something in the wine world. Yeah, well, um, I think right off the bat, one of the few benefits of this COVID environment that we're living in is there's a lot more home education 
available to people. So as I mentioned before, the whole Wine and Spirits Education Trust levels one, two, and three can all be taken online, guided by teachers in real time. Um, the Court of Master Sommeliers will have their course, uh, their, their level one coming out soon. So for people who, who simply want to get their feet wet, those are wonderful ways of doing so. And then there are, you know, things that are perhaps a step above, like, you know, the CIA, Greystone for people who live in, in Northern California, or CIA, that's Culinary mm -hmm. Institute of America, not people <laughs> in Langley, Virginia. But, you know, all of them offer courses that are now available online, et cetera. The San, you know, the, the San Francisco Wine School that David Glancy, mm -hmm. fellow master sommelier, offers all offer those. So I would say those are great ways to do stuff on your own time, at your own pace, in the privacy of your room. Over time, um, there's going to be more and more public in-person opportunities for tasting and learning. And we're not quite there yet. I mean, even if you wanted to go take a number of these classes live right now, well, geez, is there enough room? Are people socially distanced? What are the protocols for using the bathroom for pouring the wine and all that? That's going to be a ways away still. Um, hopefully we'll start to get there in baby steps in the next six to eight months. But over time, when things get back to normal, going to wine tastings is a great way. Asking a lot of questions is a great way, which you can do to a degree right now. I and mean, you can go to wineries if you happen to live in an area in the proximity of wineries going in there and just asking a lot of questions to the people who work at the uh, at the at the tasting well now it's outdoor tasting rooms and stuff like that but asking them questions the more that you know they're so happy just to have somebody say give me your most expensive not to say give me your most expensive cabernet but to actually ask them about the wines and the vineyards and stuff like that you can start to learn um, ad hoc from there if you find yourself catching the bug um, there are opportunities to to work harvests for people um, at various levels, depending on how into it you are. And, you know, uh, wineries will post job postings on spots like, um, you know, winejobs.com on how people can start getting into it. Basic uh, jobs, you know, at retail stores and all that can also be found on places like winejobs.com. So there's a lot of ways and stuff around it. But I think having the passion and the interest is step one. Um, you know, if I'm like wanting to try something new, how do I ask and say, if I'm at a, you know, a winery or a, even a wine shop, I, I want to try something different, but I don't know where to start. Great question. I, I always tell people that, that, that giving somebody, be it a retail sales associate, being at a sommelier, being at the person behind the wine bar at, at the tasting room, a, the best way to do it is, is let them know, yes, I want to try something that I haven't had before, but give them some benchmarks. I like this grape. I like that grape. I love Pinot Noir, but I really don't like Syrah. Um, I love French wine, but I haven't had too many Italian wines I like. Um, or I'm completely open and, and let them know, you know, give them some guidelines. Nobody is like, you know, uh, clairvoyant, but if you give them some helpful stuff, and you show that you're you're passionate and interested, like I said before, they're gonna be so excited because most people don't ask them that. The other thing in a retail store, I'll tell you my one, you want the $64,000 Evan Goldstein question yes. of the evening, or in a restaurant on a wine list is ask them, look at them, make eye contact and say, what do you love on the floor right now? What do you love on your wine list right now? What's drinking great right now? And they will be so thrilled Oh, let me show you. Oh, let me tell you. Oh, let me bring you a taste of this or whatever. Because nobody really ever asked them. They work so hard to get this training. And then most people simply want to say, well, I'm looking for a Chardonnay for about $45. Oh, what do I gosh, pick? You know? Guilty. So I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to be that, that curious person who asks the right question, which is just share your knowledge. What's drinking great? What do you love on the floor? So good. Hey, Evan, you know, honestly, we could talk to you all night, but I do know you've got a special dinner to prepare, so I want to let you go. But <laughs> Evan Goldstein, master sommelier, author, educator, entrepreneur, chef, what have I left off? Father? No, um, I, was a pretty good so I was a pretty good soccer coach back in the day until I retired and softball too. My daughter went off to school, the kids went off to school, but I was pretty good. I actually retired as a soccer coach uh, with, with a boys under uh, 10 team undefeated and untied in a year looked at these kids as they were eating snack and told them to understand this moment because it would probably never happen to you again and they looked at me dumbfounded and years later you know i'm friends with some of them with the you know through my son and all that and they go you know what you were right <laughs> my 
<laughs> I think that's awesome. And I love that you include that in your credits. That's so cool. <laughs> but it has been such a pleasure. Mary Orlin and I thank you so much for being part of Sip Sip Hooray today. It is my pleasure. And I, I hope I can ask for a part two at some point in time when it's convenient for you and you're, you're interested. Um, it's a treat to chat with both of you. Catch up. Um, thank Thanks. you for being great uh, hosts, asking great questions. Oh, and, absolutely. Um, you are welcome back anytime. We will make that happen for sure. And maybe in person. Gosh, that would be I imagine a world fun. where we get to meet in person again. <laughs> Until then, let's all drink Incredible. some good wine. Yes, absolutely. All right, Evan, sip, sip, hooray. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Mary B, it was just so much fun talking with Evan and what array of knowledge he has and his ability to share it so that everybody can understand it and he connects people with wine. And that is what we have always loved about him. Yeah, I'm really glad for this opportunity to hear his background, which I didn't know, and then to, you know, learn more about what he's doing now. And if you were interested in uh, Evan's Wine Club, it's Master the World is the name of the wine club. And you can find it at mtwwines.com. And there's a lot of different options. Like you can do an a la carte, just give it, give it a try once. You can do monthly or you can do an annual subscription. And then here's something really cool. You can order a Wine and Spirits Top 100 Limited Edition. So you can get a tasting kit of just awesome wines. So I just love some of the the ways he's reaching out to people and trying to share great wines with others. And, you know, this is something I see that will continue post-COVID. You know, it has really opened up the world of wine for so many people. Mm -hmm. um, usually you have to go to trade shows or, you know, be in the trade to have this kind of access. And, you know, there's four master sommeliers on Master the World who you get to hear how they think about wine. And it's a great opportunity. Yeah. And you don't have to be a wine professional, a wine geek, or a wine expert in any way. You can be a wine drinker like me, just <laughs> in it for the good taste. So um, <laughs> no. don't be intimidated. No, not at all. But um, so if you enjoyed this episode, we hope you will share it with your friends and family. And also please subscribe to our podcast at sipsiphooraypodcast.com so that you don't miss any of our episodes. You can see what we've done in the past and we will have some even more great episodes coming up. And, yes. and be sure to connect with us on social. We are at Sip Sip Hooray Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And tell us what wines you're loving. We'd like to hear. So um, we've so enjoyed being with you today. Thank you for listening and we can't wait to do it again. Cheers to you, Mary Orland. Cheers to you, Mary Babbitt. Sip Sip Hooray. Cheers. <laughs>